This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. Saddam Hussein was one of the most brutal dictators of our modern time. Saddam was one of the very few dictators in history to ever use chemical weapons against the civilian population. But I was able to find something in common with Saddam. The thing that we first connected on was our love, appreciation, and admiration for our moms. From Foreign Policy, welcome back to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. American troops captured the deposed dictator Saddam Hussein in December of 2003, about nine months after the United States invaded Iraq. By then, it was clear that the Bush administration's intelligence assessment of Iraq had been wrong. American troops found no weapons of mass destruction in the country. But with Saddam now in custody, here was an opportunity to find out what exactly the dictator had been plotting. Within days on Christmas Eve 2003, FBI Special Agent George Pirro got a call from his boss and was told he would be heading to Iraq. Pirro spent the next seven months interrogating Saddam Hussein, building a rapport with the former leader and uncovering his secrets. Here's his story. When I received the call, I didn't realize that I was even being considered for the assignment. So at that time, as I recall, we had roughly over 12,000 FBI special agents posted around the world as the FBI went through its agent population to try to identify all of its Arabic speakers. The Bureau very quickly realized the native speakers, they had roughly about 12 is the number I was told. I happened to be one of the 12, so you could see how my chances dramatically increased at that point. Of course, being a good interrogator was a requirement. I had done several key interrogations while I was in the FBI. And of course, prior to joining the FBI, I was a police officer for nearly 10 years, was a detective, and had really developed my interrogation skills and abilities. So I began diving into everything and anything that I could get my hands on to understand Saddam, both classified, unclassified. For example, I watched the Dan Rather interview of Saddam Hussein that was conducted before the war. All of those things to where I could observe Saddam's mannerism, the way he communicated, things he said, as well as his history and upbringing. And I believe it was around January 13th or so, we finally were able to physically travel to Iraq so we could start the operation. My first meeting with Saddam Hussein was actually unscheduled. Now looking back on it, I'm somewhat glad that it was unplanned because it really didn't give me a lot of time to overthink it, get nervous about it, things like that. So that evening, we were at Camp Cropper, which was the facility where Saddam was being housed. We had had our first logistical meetings. And as I was leaving, the colonel in charge of the facility came up to me and said, hey, he's not feeling very well. 
Uh, he asked to see the doctor. We don't have anyone with the clearance to translate for the doctor. You wanted to be in charge. Here you go. It's your problem now. I hadn't even thought about how I was going to introduce myself. What was I going to say? That first introduction or the first opinion really is so critical in anything. So I wanted to make sure that first impression was going to be a very effective one. The doctor was walking toward the facility and I was told you better catch up to him because he's, he's going in. So before I knew it, I found myself standing in front of the prison cell of Saddam Hussein. I purposely knocked on the door to give him the opportunity just to have noticed that we were coming in. And when we opened the door, he was standing right there in front of the door inside of the cell. I will tell you, he was much larger than I anticipated. He was about 6'1", which was not what I expected. He was large frame. I could tell he didn't feel well. When you're not feeling very well, it kind of shows. I quickly introduced myself by saying my name and that I understood he wasn't feeling very well, that I had brought a physician and he stepped back and made a hand gesture to allow us in and also said, yes, please. From the way I spoke Arabic, he immediately knew I was of Lebanese descent and he quickly pointed that out. And he said he loved Lebanese people and Lebanese people loved him. I said, well, great, we're going to get along very well. And then at some point, even within that first uh, interaction, he pointed out that I was Christian. If you're Lebanese and your first name is George, very strong likelihood that you're, you're Christian. And I told him that I was. He said that you know, he was very comfortable with the fact that I was Christian and then that there were so many similarities between the three major religions. And at that point, I realized, uh, quickly determined that my religion wasn't going to be a factor. The first interrogation began, the actual formal interrogation, a week and a half or so after. So one of the key concerns the FBI had was my age. At that time, I was in my mid-30s. Saddam was 67. Within the Arab culture, there's a belief that wisdom increases with age, and there's a much greater recognition and appreciation and respect given to age. So pretty quickly into the interrogation, he actually asked me, aren't you a little young for this assignment? And And I was really waiting for him to ask me. I wanted him to bring it up. You know, on the inside, I was smiling and very excited. And I had kind of exactly prepared what I was going to say. And I told him I knew that he was a little younger than me when he became vice president, a little older than me when he was president. If anyone should know its ability, not age, I thought it would be him. And that really kind of resonated with him when that comparison was presented. I never told him what my title was or what my rank, but I kind of left it and created the environment where he saw me as a very senior high-ranking official. So the MPs that were responsible for uh, the physical security of Saddam, we had made sure that we had coached them and coordinated with them so that they showed me a lot of deference when I 
and was engaging with Saddam. And then my ability to get things done were really exaggerated. To give you a quick example, at some point we had to really get or allow Saddam to go outside and get exercise time. Under the Geneva Convention, every enemy prisoner of war is allowed the opportunity to go outside and exercise. Actually, it's twice a day for a certain amount. The military had built the facility to allow him to do that, but we wanted him to ask us for that opportunity. From an interrogation perspective, you know, the act of asking is critical, especially at the beginning stages. And once he did, I shouted out some orders, even though everything was built, they started to make noise, bang on things and do all of this behind the scenes acting to make it look like they were building all of this infrastructure necessary for him to go outside at that moment based on my instructions. 15 or so minutes later, 20 minutes later, they came back, looked at me, they were like, we're ready. And he walked outside, he saw these walls and all of these barriers and this entire area develop just for him to exercise. And he was shocked. He asked me, he goes, you just did this now? And, and I said, well, you asked me now to go outside, so I wanted to give you that opportunity. So things like that really kind of elevated my position and authority within his eyes or in his mind, you know, having him come to that conclusion on his own carries a much more weight. So the FBI's approach to interrogation is what we call a, a rapport-based approach. You have to find something in common with your subject. No matter how evil, no matter how brutal the person is, you can always find something in common. Saddam Hussein was one of the most brutal dictators of our modern time. Saddam was one of the very few dictators in history to ever use chemical weapons against the civilian population. But I was able to find something in common with Saddam. The thing that we first connected on was our love, appreciation, and admiration for our moms. Saddam didn't have a father. Saddam's father died just before or just after Saddam's birth. His mother raised him. They were very poor. And I would say that from everything I ever saw and everything he's told me, the only person that he truly, truly trusted in his entire life or any person that had any real influence over him was his mother. What adds to that, of course, in the Arab culture, the most important woman in an Arab man's life is his mother and always will be. I, of course, have the same respect, love, admiration for my mom. And I talked about everything that my mom has done for me. She has really shaped the man that I am today. And he could see that it was very real, very genuine. I didn't have to misrepresent anything when I talk about my mom. It's completely true. And we connected on that. Our routine was as I would meet him every morning roughly 7 a.m. with the medical staff. I would translate for the doctor who would conduct the morning medical exam and routine. And the doctor would leave. He and I would stay. We would have coffee together and we would talk and potentially go outside to the exercise yard and things like that. It was critical to get Saddam Hussein to submit to our authority. So getting him 
to ask for things in a sense was getting him to passively submit to our authority. So one of the first ways we actually started to focus on that was time. We wanted to not prevent him from knowing the time, but kind of control where he received the time, where he sought, what time it was. So one of the steps that we took is no one wore a watch except for me. Now I, on the other hand, wore an extremely large, very, very visible watch and slowly began to, in a sense, force him to ask me what time it was and passively submit to our authority. Saddam was a germaphobe. He hated touching things. He hated people touching him. So as you can imagine, being in a, in a small prison cell that did not have uh, restroom facilities within the cell itself, kind of challenging for a germaphobe. I introduced baby wipes to him and he became in love with them. He used them for everything. Now we would purposely give him a small amount. So every week or so he would have to ask for more. And over time, it became easier for him to ask for things and accept things. And then it was starting to kind of break down that defensive barrier or wall that he had created to make it a intellectual confrontation between he and us. April 28, 2004 was Saddam's birthday. It was a great opportunity for us to really demonstrate to him how the Iraqi people felt about him. He was of the mindset that the Iraqi people really loved him, valued him, appreciated him, and we knew that was not the case. You know, prior to the war, it was Iraqi law that every Iraqi home had to throw a birthday party for Saddam Hussein, or in a sense that everyone in Iraq had to celebrate Saddam's birthday. So up to this point, Saddam did not have access to any outside media. So no newspapers, no TV or anything like that. That particular day, we actually made an exception and we allowed him to see newspaper articles, clips of news, things like that. So of course, as you can imagine, the Iraqis, for the most part, were celebrating in Iraq, but they were celebrating not having to celebrate Saddam's birthday. There were parties everywhere. So that particular day, we shared all of that, and it really did have a significant psychological effect on Saddam. Here was an opportunity for his people to show their true love and admiration for their leader, and they showed the complete opposite. I will tell you, it was probably the most depressed I had seen him throughout the duration of the seven months that I had spent with him. So uh, my mom had sent me a care package uh, with cookies and, and things. So on that particular day, I brought in tea and the cookies, which is customary in the Arab culture. In a sense, sending the message, the only people that really cared about Saddam or cared about his birthday was us. I could see that had an effect on him, the emotional effect on him, that at least someone, in a sense, cared enough about his birthday. He knew they were my mom's cookies, and I kind of used that to my advantage, and we continued to move forward. You're listening to I Spy, 
a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. We return to George Pirro, the FBI special agent who interrogated Saddam Hussein. When it became very evident that Iraq did not have the WMD that we had suspected prior to the war, there were really two things we wanted to know from Saddam Hussein. Why were we wrong regarding our intelligence? And second, what were Saddam's long-term intentions as it pertains to his WMD program. It took us about five months into the interrogation to get to the point where we were comfortable and confident asking those questions, and we did not want to ask those before we had reached that point. One of the things that kind of drove that initial assessment that Iraq had WMD was because of a speech that Saddam Hussein gave in June of 2000. It's a very, very critical uh, speech in the sense, I'm paraphrasing, Iraq would not disarm until the others in the region disarmed, rifle for rifle, stick for stick, stone for stone. That was a really key speech in which Saddam was basically saying Iraq wouldn't give up its WMD until Iran and Israel did the same. So I kind of wanted to bring up this key speech, but I wanted to do it in a fashion that wouldn't tip off our interest or focus on the actual speech. We had built such a tremendous rapport. I was able to literally say, Saddam, hey, if you don't want to tell me something, you can say it. I don't want to say it. I don't want to talk about it versus try to lie to me because it's insulting. But I wasn't going to take anything for granted. So one of the things Saddam loved doing in detention was write poetry. And the one disadvantage of being the only person that Saddam Hussein talked to was I got to hear all of his poetry. For the most part, (laughs) they were not very good or I truly, I didn't understand the majority of them because he would write in a very, very old fashioned, very traditional, the term is Bedouin, uh, which is a tribal form of Arabic that I had no idea what he was saying, but I had to act like it was great was amazing. I loved it and all of those things. So one day we're sitting there and he's reading these poems. And, you know, of course, I'm trying to do everything I can not to show how miserable I am on the exterior. And I recognize that my segue to the speech was his poetry. So at the end of one of his poems, I told him that he had a very, very unique writing style. I could sense the, the passion and the fire that's within him. It jumps out in his poetry and things like that. And I use a lot of flowery words to describe how, how incredible and wonderful his poetry. He was really ecstatic to hear that. He's like, you've been listening, you've been paying attention. This is incredible. Uh, and I said, you know what, what I realized was is, you know, that you used to write your own speeches because I see that same fire, that same passion in your speeches as I saw in your poetry. But I said there was a couple that I didn't recognize. So I'm assuming those were written by others, but the majority of, of your speeches were definitely yours. He immediately stopped and he looked at me. He's like, what are you talking about? Which ones? 
I go, well, you know, the majority of them. And I kind of played it off. And he's like, no, 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 which one? And I go, well, ironically, you know, in June of 2000, you had written a speech and it really didn't seem like your speech. It was, you know, it didn't have that same writing style that I've, I've seen in your speeches and your poetry. He immediately remembered which one it was. And then we began to have a conversation and he started to tell me why he had written that speech and who his biggest concern was and his fear and those kinds of things and all to kind of explain away why he did not use that same writing style that he had done for the other speeches or more importantly for his poetry. So what it became very clear for us is that Saddam's biggest fear was in the United States. It really even was in Israel. His biggest fear was Iran, which was his next door neighbor. He had fought an eight year war, a war that he almost lost. And he recognized the importance of his WMD program and his far more advanced weapons capability to keep Iran at bay. And one of the things that in his mind kept him at, at bay was his WMD and his weapons program. So our intelligence assessment regarding his WMD was really driven by his own effort to mislead his biggest enemy, which was Iran, and then everyone else as a result of that effort. You know, being in Iraq was not very enjoyable. The thrill of interrogating Saddam faded within the first week. It was really hard work. We were long days, no days off. The conditions were extremely challenging. You knew you were in a war zone. You couldn't go anywhere. I wanted to get back, you know, get back to my family, get back to normal life. And I realized that it wasn't cool anymore. Having said all that, what made me able to spend so much time with him and allow me to be somewhat successful was he was very fun to talk to. Extremely challenging, very difficult, but at times very, very fun. He was very charming. He could be very, very charismatic. The thing that surprised me the most about Saddam Hussein was his sense of humor. He could be very likable. So spending five to seven hours with him in a day wasn't as difficult or as painful as you would think when you talk about spending it with you know, one of the most brutal dictators of our modern time. While I didn't get emotionally attached or develop personal feelings, it wasn't difficult to spend hours with him either. The Iraqi interim government came to power on June 28, 2004. What that basically meant was a transfer of power to the newly established interim Iraqi government. On that date, they issued 12 arrest warrants, the first for Saddam Hussein. And that really kind of began that transfer process. So my last interaction with Saddam Hussein was one of the very few, if not the only time that I actually put any thought or preparation into. I knew Saddam loved cigars. His favorite cigar, a Cuban cigar, it's Cohibas. So I went out and got a couple of Cohibas. So that particular morning we made coffee. We went outside immediately to the exercise yard. I gave him the Cuban cigar. We sat out 
Uh, it was August of 2004. It was sunny, nice day. And we smoked uh, our two Cuban cigars, drank coffee and talked for a couple of hours. And then I said bye to him. I was surprised how emotional he became. He really started to tear up. I saw tears kind of rolling down his cheek and I said goodbye. And, and I was able then to depart Iraq. I actually did not want to watch uh, the execution. I was given the opportunity to go and I said no. Now I had the privilege of helping write and compile the prosecutor report that was prepared by the FBI and provided to the Iraqis. So if anyone knew how evil or how horrific of crimes he was responsible for, I did when I was able to compile that prosecutor report. However, I felt I had completed my responsibility, whether it was the interrogation, the prosecutor report, and I didn't want to necessarily be present for the execution. When the execution took place, I was actually in Chicago. However, everywhere you turned was on every channel, so I couldn't avoid it. And I, of course, uh, watched it. I will say, while I believe it was the most fair, appropriate, and just sentence that Saddam could have re received for his horrific crimes, I did not enjoy watching it and uh, was really angry about the manner, the way it was carried out. In my opinion, it took away from the victims and the crime when it was carried out in what appeared to be a very vengeful manner. And when they say the most dignified person at an execution is the person being executed, something did not go well. So he and I talked about his trial and his execution well before his execution. He had kind of told me what he was going to do. He was going to redeem his legacy and his image that was really tarnished by his capture. He was seen as a coward when he was pulled out of that hole and then the way he appeared or his appearance. So his goal for the trial and for the execution was to show again the Iraqi people and really the entire world that he was a warrior, you know, very courageous and showed no fear. And if you look at his behavior at his execution, it really absolutely did that for him. He didn't wear a, a mask. You know, they were taunting him. He dismissed them. He got the prey. He did all of the things that he needed to do to really reestablish himself and repair the damage to his image. That was the FBI's George Pirro. These days, Pirro serves as the special agent in charge in the Bureau's Miami field office. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. Our I Spy team includes Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. 
iSpy at foreignpolicy.com. iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in not just espionage, but smart geopolitical news and analysis from Washington and around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners can get a 10% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code PODCAST at checkout. Next week on iSpy, a British agent serves as a mole in Northern Ireland's Sinn Féin group until his cover is blown. The boss said to me, our information is you'll be dead by the morning. We need to get you out of here tonight. That's next week on iSpy. I'm Margot Martindale.